Hey guys, you're listening to episode 49 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're talking with John Chestnut, the president and CEO of Wycliffe Bible Translators. everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Keelan, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Cody. Today, we had the chance to talk with John Chestnut, the president and CEO of Wycliffe Bible Translators. Wycliffe has been working in the Bible translation space for the last 80 years, and they've certainly learned a lot along the way. On top of his work with Wycliffe, John is also involved with Finishing the Task and Illuminations, both of which represent unprecedented collaboration among organizations and the church to fuel the spreading of the gospel to the final frontiers around the globe. Stay tuned to hear all he had to share. Before we get started, you know this podcast has grown almost exclusively by word of mouth. For those of you who have helped us get the message out there by sending a link to a friend or sharing on social media, we just wanted to give you a big thanks. It really makes an impact. If you think this or any of our other conversations are thought-provoking or inspiring, take a second to share it with someone who might need to hear it. We have been blown away at how God has used some of these stories to make a radical impact in the world of generosity and missions, and you very well might be a link in that chain. All right, with that, let's get to the interview. All right, here we are tonight with John Chestnut from Wycliffe Bible Translators. John, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Hey, thank you for the opportunity. I've been looking forward to it, so really great for it. So why don't you kick us off just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. So our family and I, I'll kind of start there. My wife and I have been married now for about 34 years, and we have a large family and a very global family. I'll explain what I mean by that. We have seven children, three by birth and four by adoption. And so that's been a big part of our family journey is the adoption part of the story. Our oldest two we adopted when we were in the pastorate here serving in the U.S. from Vietnam. And then our youngest two, after we joined Wycliffe, we were living in the Philippines for nine years and we adopted them while we were living there. So it was a domestic adoption. So that's been a big part of our family journey. We've talked about, you know, one of our hobbies was we gather kids from around the world. And so that's uh, that's been a fun part of it there. Interesting enough, and I guess maybe not surprised in some ways, but being a multinational family, our oldest five are married and they have also married children. Their spouses, I should say, are also multi-ethnic as well. So I have one son-in-law that his dad is Italian, mom is Korean. Another son-in-law whose dad is from Mexico and mom was from here in the U.S., Anglo. And so I tell people that part of my job is I'm an international negotiator around the dinner table often. And so, but that's <laughs> been a, that's been a big part of our fun and family journey and ongoing that way. Yeah, John, I was hoping you could share a little bit more about your faith background as well. You know, I was really blessed in many ways that I got to come to Christ at an early age. My parents were born and really raised in the church, but I would say came back to a renewed faith in Christ when I was quite young. And so I remember as an eight-year-old making a profession of faith and even a couple of times that I wanted to make sure I got it all right, you know, and so... From that point on, I began to my journey in faith really with Christ. And moving forward at a middle school camp, a summer camp, I remember really just asking the Lord, 
about what would you want me to do with my life? And I, I felt at that time that God was giving clear direction that I would somehow wind up in ministry. Uh, I didn't know what that meant and was wide open to, you know, what he might have there. And and so right away, even in middle school and high school, began engaging in church ministry and helping to lead worship with youth group and such and and through college, similar types of things. But really holding openly is, Lord, what would you have me to do and how can I serve you in that way? Even in college, the Lord gave me an opportunity to spend a summer over in the Philippines. It was a short-term mission trip, about seven weeks. And it was really at that time that God began to place upon my heart an understanding, really opened my eyes to some things that God was doing outside of the U.S. and really a global perspective in that regard. And so that was very life-impacting, kind of in the seeking and searching, what would he have me to do? As I got into my third year of college, I spent, I guess it was right before the, my junior year of college, spent the summer on a, a singing group out of our college. And at one of the church stops, I met who would become my wife, my wife, Kelly. And as we began to grow in our relationship, learned that her folks were medical missionaries in the Philippines. So she was born in the Philippines. So we had this connection of the Philippines together there. And again, just God continued to grow our passion and desire for the global church and what he was doing around the world. And so that took us into, we got married and then began to ask, Lord, how might we be able to serve you in that regard? And we spent our first several years of marriage in the pastorate and she led worship and I was various, you know, youth pastor. And then we church planted, co-planted with another couple. And during that time, again, the Lord really laid upon our heart an engagement with what he was doing around the world. Our church was a smaller church, but we decided that we wanted to adopt a people group in a large Asian country that's often, you know, very, very sensitive and so still is sensitive in that regard. And so we did that as a church. And so again, God just continued to nurture that picture of, hey, this is what I'm doing around the world and how might you be part of it? And so that's from the early the early years, I would say for both of us, that really has been a, a journey of of exposing us to what he's doing around the world and then kind of that question of how might we participate with that? And so how did things go from life in the local church to what you're doing today with Wycliffe and how did you kind of bridge that gap? So a couple of things. First of all, in my role as a pastor, we would take groups, often families down over spring break, and we would take them on missions trips. And I remember very distinctly on a, on a trip that we had taken happened to be down in Mexico. One of the mornings that we were there and had devotions, we had a speaker from a mission organization that was sharing about their family's work in Papua New Guinea. And I remember as I was sitting there, he was telling the story of doing, participating in translation among this community, a small community in Papua New Guinea. And at the end of it, he challenged the group. He said, you know, what you're doing in the way of short-term missions is that's good. And I want to encourage that. But my question to you is, what would it take for you to give your life to this work? My wife and I, Kelly and I had considered living overseas at times. It just didn't ever seem like it'd be the right time. And that challenge was a real significant part of our journey, along with then this community that we adopted in Asia there. As we began to dig in and really ask, how might we be able to serve and partner with them from a distance. One of the things that we learned is that there were multiple agencies and individuals that were working among this community. 
But we found out that kind of the bottleneck, the problem they were having for these other ministries to work there is that they were having problems with understanding of Scripture. It was not just they didn't have Scripture, which they didn't have much of at all. There just was some starting work there. But in this community, it was a broader community spread out over a a mountainous area that we found out that some of these communities, while they technically spoke the same language, they struggled to understand one another. And we realized that, you know, all of these workers that were focused on this community, that without scripture and without scripture that could be understood, there was really very little they could do in the way of planning churches, discipling and evangelizing in that regard. And here I was in at this time, we had planned this church, we had participated in the U.S., We had participated in helping other churches in our area start as well. And so I had a real heart for church planting. And that was really where God had called, I thought had really called us. But I realized, wait a minute, if there's no scripture in a language that the people can understand, then you can't do these other Great Commission activities. So that was really, I think, where God began to open at least the question for me through these two experiences of, are you willing to consider participating in in what I'm doing outside of the country as well? Yeah, it's hard to imagine planning a church with no scripture in your language. Could you take us back a little bit and tell us about the beginnings of Wycliffe? How was it founded and and how has it evolved over the years? Yeah, great question. So today, this actually this year, we are in our 80th year. So we're not young anymore. You know, we've, we've been around for some time. But really, the beginning of Wycliffe, started with our founder, Cameron Townsend, who was working for a Bible agency in Guatemala distributing scriptures. And he was distributing Spanish scriptures. And as he was passing them out and going from village to village in this mountainous area, he learned through one of the young men that was traveling with them that it became, he said, you know, this scripture, this Spanish scripture is not what we speak. Yeah, we've learned some Spanish but it really doesn't speak to us. And the question was, you know, this God that you're proclaiming, if he's so big, how come he doesn't speak our language per se? And that was really something where Cameron Townsend was, I think God placed upon his heart, what about these communities that don't have scripture? At that time, he thought there were just several hundred that may not globally at that point in time. And so he ended up going back in beginning to invest in a community, in a community in Guatemala there, and he translated the New Testament. And he began to see what took place by the transformation that was taking place in this community. Because now, even though, again, they spoke some Spanish, many of them, it just wasn't, it wasn't penetrating their heart. And that was really the birth of Wycliffe. It started with our partner organization, SIL, which used to stand for Summer Institute of Linguistics. They started there first. And then afterwards, Wycliffe came to come alongside of SIL and really be the agency that was here in the U.S. to support the work on the field. And so now, you know, kind of fast forward over 80 years, our partner SIO, we continue to partner with very closely. But that now has expanded into about 35 or so other organizations around the world that we also help provide people to and resources and such moving forward. So it was that small vision that took place there. You know, I should say that engagement that took place there that then God used to plant a seed that has grown since that time. Now, we're cliffs around the world, 
which we Wycliffe U.S., the one here in the U.S., was the first Wycliffe. But since about the early 1990s, those have now multiplied into multiple Wycliffe's that are independent around the world, that now we have over 100 Wycliffe's globally. Some share the name, some don't, that participate together in the work. And so it's been significant growth. I should say that Wycliffe had the opportunity and privilege really to participate in seeing other organizations birth that also have a similar vision and passion of engaging the least communities of the world in some of the hardest to reach places globally. Yeah, that's really interesting how it has multiplied and grown over the years to really encompass the global scale of the work that there is to be done. I was hoping you could kind of walk us through what it looks like from start to finish to actually translate a language for a new people group that hasn't had any access to the gospel. You know, you talked about translating the New Testament on his own, and I'm sure that, you know, to some degree that's happened over the years, but I'm sure it probably looks a little different now for the processes you guys use and the partnerships you guys have. So maybe you could walk us through an example of what that looks like. Yeah. So in those early days, you know, when Cameron Townsend was first in and really for many of the next several decades, our work was heavily carried out by people from the U.S. or other countries around the world that would go and engage with the language community that many times as they began to engage and find ways to learn the language, often would move into that community, learn and begin to build relationships within these communities they were the first gospel presence in these communities, in the history really of the world in many cases, which is quite incredible. And the ministry was heavily carried out in a very incarnational way is that they moved in, these families or you know singles, teams would move into these communities and become the hands and feet in Christ there. And many of these communities, they did not have any written form of their own language. And so often what would happen is they begin to work with the community to learn the language and then help them to devise an alphabet. And they would work with them and then they would teach them to learn to read and write their own language. Again, they're working together on this. And out of that is how the scriptures began to be translated. And so it was a long, tedious process, much by just, you know, handwritten type of notes and such. It was all this was all pre-computer time. And so It was not uncommon for a New Testament to take the entire life career of a missionary family. Often that was 20, 30, or 40 years. And obviously living in these communities at the time involved a lot anyway. So they just weren't working on translation all the day. You know, they were having to live a lot of life that just took a lot of time and energy. And so that was really the primary model on how things started and continued on for 40, 50 years. In some places today, that is the model, I would say, that for people that are getting probably closer to finishing the task. Now what we're seeing, and because of that, and I believe largely because of the foundation that many of these families sacrifice and singles and such sacrifice, they laid a foundation that what we really have seen is more of a growing global church that now today more and more translation is being carried out by people from these communities, either from the community itself or maybe a surrounding community that is engaging and looking, say, how do we reach this community with God's word? And so the face and the methodology of translation has changed significantly over the years. But it was really because 
I believe, of the early years of the laying of the foundation of many people that would give their entire lives to work in one community, built that foundation of the church in many of these communities that the gospel was completely unknown prior to that. And so today we're just, we see more and more that people from the countries or the communities in which the translation is that are being carried out, they're the ones more and more that are doing a lot of the work. And then people from outside also participate with and often bring things that the local community would not. So sometimes that's training, sometimes it's financial resources. What are the things really to where now we see more and more of the global church coming together to carry out the work around the world in these various communities? So, John, I imagine it's very exciting when a new translation is completed, and that's absolutely something to celebrate. But it also opens a lot of new doors, and I would think that there's a lot of partner organizations that might be waiting on a completed translation to do what they do best. It might be church planning. It might be distribution. Could you elaborate a little more on what happens once Scripture is translated into a new language? Yeah, really great question. So again, kind of looking back, you know, in some of the early years of translation, when that work would take place, sometimes they would have, you know, books and things like that they would finish and they would get out in a in a temporary booklet so people would have it. But many times it was they needed to wait years and years and years before they actually had something to show and use in the community. And so other activities, Great Commission activities that would happen in those communities were often based upon the talent of the team and what they could do. And or every once in a while, you had other mission organizations and things that would be working together in that regard. And so it really was even other things like church planting and discipleship and things. In some cases, it took a long, long time and seeing that come about and become a reality. Today, though, what I would say that we're doing more and more is that as we engage in the translation process, that we're doing so with other partners, realizing that translation is only a, it's a really important part of Great Commission activities, but it's only one portion of it. We can't do it all. So it really is how do we come together and work together in these partnerships? And so we can see churches planted because you have people there that are focused on and gifted in planting churches in evangelism and discipleship that takes place. And so really coming together and seeing these things carried out together. So, for example, one of our close partners over many years is Jesus Film. And so in order for the Jesus Film to be produced, we need to have the Book of Luke or a significant portion of the Book of Luke translated. Again, not too, too many years ago, many times you would finish the New Testament and go, hey, we've got the New Testament done. Let's invite Jesus Film in. And we'll work together and we'll see, you know, the Jesus film produced. Now, what we will see many times is that one of the first books that might be translated in a language would be the book of Luke. And Jesus film is coming in right away. And so you've got the birth of a church that may be taking place because of the evangelistic efforts of friends like Jesus film. Or faith comes by hearing, you know, where many times people, they may have a written text. But they may not be able to read their own language. They may not have gotten that far in literacy and things like that. So Faith Comes by Hearing comes in and they will develop in an audio recording. And so it is used and then it can be passed and shared for, you know, here's this gospel or here's these sections or these books here and things like that. And again, that allows for a lot more immediacy of engagement with Scripture to see people prayerfully come to Christ 
you know, the roots begin to take place within this community and you begin to see the transformation that will take place. And so for us more and more today, what we're saying is we don't want to go in it alone. We want to work with other partners that bring together these various aspects of a really great commission activity so that we can partner together to prayerfully see this community transform, you know, with the gospel message. Yeah, thank you for that, John. I'm really curious if you were to begin work on a new language that there is no scripture translated into that language as of right now, what would it cost or how would you budget for the completed translation of that language? So what we typically do is that we know areas of the world that will be cheaper than others. You know, some of them are much more expensive than other parts of the world. But on average, what we would be looking at is that at the point that a translation is ready to start. So often there's a lot of work that you need to do in engaging the communion things beforehand. But let's say you've done the engagement, you've kind of tilled the soil and things there. When a language project or a translation is ready to start, kind of globally, we would say it's about $400,000 for a New Testament. And then for a full Bible, it's just a little bit less than a million dollars. And again, that's just kind of our best guess because there's areas in, you know, some creative access countries in Eurasia, you know, the Middle East and those things. Often it's going to be more expensive there because of, you know, the creative access part of it and how do you actually gain access community. We're in the Pacific and things. It may be less than that. But overall, that's how we begin to kind of budget and plan together. And typically, again, with our partners on the ground to see that carried out. But that's kind of on an average basis there. It was uh, cool to hear you mention Jesus Film and Faith Comes by Hearing. We've had both of them on the podcast before, Morgan Jackson from Faith Comes by Hearing, and we just had Josh Newell from Jesus Film on to share their stories. And I think they both mentioned Wycliffe as all of you have worked so closely together. And I think one of the things that gets me most excited in all these conversations we've been able to be a part of is to see the church really coming together in a very tight-knit and very focused way to really complete the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. I know that you're involved in finishing a task and also the Illuminations collaboration, which is working to translate scripture into all languages by 2033. And so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about your involvement in both of those organizations and how you are seeing that collaboration really accelerate the work that's being done. Yeah, Keelan, you've pinned on a place that for me is one of the most exciting things that I feel like that I am getting to participate in personally, but also just as I look globally that I believe that God is doing, and that is bringing together partners that historically, many of them have been out there a long time, some of them are brand new or almost unknown, but that he's bringing together different partners to carry out his work in ways that I don't know if we've ever seen in the history of the world, of the church. And so, and you mentioned two of them. So finishing the task is really from a great commission act, you know, focus. What we're seeing is people that are coming in around asking the question, what would it look like for every person on the face of the earth to have availability of scripture in a language and form, you know, that they can engage with. So you have kind of either the Bible translation and scripture engagement people. And then you move over and you say, what's it look like if there was a, what we call a body What would it look like if there was a body, a church that was available for every thousand people globally? And so you've got your church planners that are really working and saying, what's that look like together? 
And then a believer, when you look at for every person on the face of the earth to be at least have the opportunity to be exposed to the gospel message through evangelism and discipleship. And then we have the whole area of prayer kind of surrounding that with prayer. And so these domains of, you know, of a Bible, of a body, of a believer and and bold prayer really coming together and saying, how can we work as these elements of the church across multiple churches multiple ministry, mission organizations, partnerships and things to come together and say, what would it look like to see the Great Commission and asking God for the Great Commission to be fulfilled during our lifetime? And those activities, I believe, really are the foundation. They're the Great Commission foundation needs to be laid for everything else that we do in the church to be present. We've got to have the scriptures. We have to have a church that's deep and growing in a church that's engaged with evangelism and discipleship, all surrounded by prayer. So that's finishing the task. That's really how do we come together globally in these different domains to see the Great Commission carried out throughout the earth? And just some really, really exciting things that we're seeing that still, it's still in its early stages, but, you know, I'm seeing that that I believe that God is really kind of percolating that in the hearts and minds of people uh, around the world. A little bit closer to home for us, just in that Bible translation space, you mentioned Illuminations. And so Illuminations was started by a group that internally we used to call them, we still do, Every Tribe, Every Nation. And that was really birthed in 2010. Mark Green of the Hobby Lobby Green family. This was a passion and prayer that, a vision really, that God placed upon his heart of what would it look like if we brought Bible translation workers, agencies around the table, along with people, philanthropic givers that were were saying, how do we work together? And in this process, can we do so? Can we work together by reducing redundancy and parallel activities and things to work together in new collaborative ways? And that started in 2010. I think it was with five Resource partners is what we call them often. I believe it was three agencies that has now grown to 11 agencies and are working together to say, how do we carry this work out together? It's been one of the most exciting things. I would say it's hard too. you know, we all come in and we have our own ideas and everything. And so how do we continue to submit that really to one another and before the Lord and say, okay, how do we work together to get better at this and to accomplish this? globally together, using different methodologies, different ways to engage in these communities, but really working together. And so from the field perspective, we've done a lot of that. We continue to do a lot of that. But one of the things that may feel a little bit more risky to some is that back in 2015-ish, we said, what would it look like if we began to actually raise funds together? What happened if we collectively engaged a broader pool of donors of people that God had placed in their hearts, hey, we want to participate, you know, in something together. And, you know, I think in all of our, maybe our default settings humanly is that we have kind of this scarcity mentality of, oh man, if I don't get mine, if I don't kind of protect mine or in particular the donors, you know, you're going to, oh, if that donor hears about this ministry, maybe that ministry look more appealing and I'll miss out on what, you know, maybe they were going to give to us. And it's easy to kind of get in that default mindset. But what we found is that as we began to engage these donors, these investors that were really kingdom-minded people, as they saw us working together, 
what we found is that God did an incredible work in the minds and hearts, just as he was doing in us to work together. And the same thing in engaging donors that they caught the vision and they began to see these agencies working together. And the attractiveness to them was, you mean we're not having to pick and choose between these agencies. You've got this group. They're saying, we're going to do this and accomplish it together. We're going to have open handedness as we approach this. And we're going to share one another. We're going to cheer one another on and we're going to do this together. And there's a picture in my mind that for me has been one of the most impactful visual examples of this is that typically we will have these gatherings, usually about once a year, we call it illuminations. And these 11 CEOs that will stand up on the stage together, all with different, you know, brands, all with different team jerseys on. And we're saying, you know what, we're committed together to seeing this mission carried out together. We're going to work hard to reduce these redundancies and to collaborate in ways that we have not done before. And what we have seen is just a tremendous outpouring of God's generosity in that, both in mind and will, prayer, and the giving. And we've seen collectively more resources come in working in an open-handed posture in that way. And I think God has just blessed that. Then what we could have done individually by far, and I think we're looking at multiple times of you know exponential growth that's taken place, even in the resources and the giving, because God has engaged the hearts and minds of these donors in ways that, again, I don't think it would have happened with any one of us just working as individual agencies saying, hey, would you consider you know partnering with us in that ministry? So that has been a tremendous blessing. It's been a tremendous encouragement in many ways. As I mentioned, it's a lot of work. It's a, We've got to work real hard to maintain good relationships with one another. But as we've postured with open-handedness and continue to feel our hands closing back up, you know, Lord really challenges, open our hands again. And it's in that that God has just lavished, you know, his grace and his love and his resources in ways that it's been absolutely incredible. John, I love that image of the 11 CEOs standing up on stage, all representing their individual organizations, their team, their work that God has given to them to do, but all working towards the same end and working together. And I think that's a beautiful image to represent what's happening in in the global church. And it is really exciting to be witnessing or hearing about it. And I'm sure for you to be participating so directly in that I'm wondering, you said it might cost around a million dollars to translate the Bible into one language, for example. And you said early on it was believed that there were maybe a few hundred languages that needed translating, but I think we know that's no longer the case. It's many, many more than that. But just doing the math in my head, there's enough resources financially to accomplish this probably in the U.S. right now, and the processes are there. And 2033 is a pretty aggressive timeline, but that's not going to be without challenges. And I'm hoping you can share a little bit about what challenges might be encountered between now and then. Yeah, Cody, you point out your spot on in the fact that, you know, the resources are there. They're available within, I think, to your point, just within the U.S., but I would say globally in the global church, they're certainly there. You know, and often we will look and we've talked about this. Matter of fact, at our last illumination just here in April, we talked about this, is that 
the God is blessing with the finances, but a reminder that the unreached people groups of the world are unreached for a reason. If it was easy, they would be reached. But those that are unreached, they literally are at the ends of the earth. And, you know, for us, what that means is that the barriers to getting, you know, to these communities and engaging some of them, not as much globally as much, but you look at areas like Papua New Guinea, the remoteness of them is still a really, really big issue. There's many, many small communities that are very isolated still in Papua New Guinea. And so you just look at that. That's one set of challenges that we find. A lot of the remaining languages are behind walls that would be either politically they're behind walls, you know, where people gain access to these communities. And then many times they are in areas where there's other majority religions that they do not want scripture in their communities at all. And so the funding part of that has been a big, big blessing in the way of seeing these unreached and these remaining translation needs and unreached people groups reached with the gospel message. But the hurdles to get there to continue to be very, very significant. And we were talking about that. You know, we said on the 2033 pace that we're asking God for, right now we're not on pace to reach that. And again, I think that the areas that we're finding that are the biggest barriers are those that are continued to engage the people resources to do so. And then I would say access to these communities. So that's really what we're asking God in both of these. I mean, we need the prayer resources. We need the funding resources. We need the people. And then we need to be able to see that access. As you know, you know, every time we look on our feeds, our news feeds or on the TV, we continue to see how tumultuous our world is. And it seems like it's actually getting worse and harder all the time. That creates real challenges for people to gain access. At the same time, in the midst of that, there are people groups that are being displaced by these same wars and tragedies that are taking place globally that are actually allowing access to some of these communities that if they were in their country where they had resided, where they were born and such, were not available, we could not get access to. But in some cases, they've had to move to another country, another part of their own country that then is, becomes accessible. And so the way that God is carrying this out, I think, is just incredible. Those are particularly from the outside. The other thing that we're seeing happening today for these remaining needs is God is raising up these national church planting movements and discipleship making movements that we're seeing happen all around the world. And they are in some of the toughest places on earth. And so where outsiders are not allowed in, God is raising up people from within these communities. And in many situations, what we're seeing is that God may place upon their hearts that they want to see churches planted in these various communities across their country. And as they begin looking at that and God has called them to do so, that they realize, you know what, one of the barriers is that they don't speak the main language, the majority language of a country. And so we've got all these other, these languages out here. And so how are we going to plant a church? And so that has caused some determined say and engage even from afar to say, can you help do training with us? Can you provide training? Can you help us come alongside of us so that we can also learn to translate God's word? And then we will be the ones to take it into these other communities. And so they are able to go beyond where areas that many times outsiders could not participate. So this is something we're seeing 
happen over and over again in the hardest to reach countries of the world. There's one real kind of exciting area, and I'll mention the country name, and that is in the country of Iran, Iran right now, there is a national church planting movement there. I got to meet the leader just a couple months ago, and they have worked together to update the full Bible in a Farsi language. And so Farsi or Persian is the majority language there in Iran. They updated, revised this entire Bible, the full Bible, that typically would take a group of translators, if they were working hard and everything was, you know, right, the average would be about 16 years. They engaged 800 people from 40-some churches to participate in this revision process, got brought together. And this all happened during COVID. I mean, this was not something that happened out there. It was during the season. And just in a little over a year, they had this revision that was done. And the reason that that's so important is that that's a related language that then will help in these smaller languages will likely be very closely tied to Farsi. And so now they have a reference text. They go, well, how was it translated in Farsi, which will help them translate into that local dialect or language that they'll be working on. So we have these church planters that are taking the word and they're taking the gospel and they're saying, and we want to help with translation and we want to help with scripture engagement and such. And God is reduplicating this over and over again in countries around the world that, again, if it was left to people from outside to try to engage, even sometimes from within that region of the world, that they may not have access. But this is one of the ways we're seeing these walls that are being broken down to these barriers in such parts of the world. I love stories like that because I think it's really easy for us as Westerners to think that we can do everything if we just put our minds to it. And like, yeah, we need God, but in the kind of a philosophical way, but really we're the ones that are going to do the work. But when there are barriers like that, that are so insurmountable without God moving, and then to see God work through totally different people groups. And we've heard this kind of story over and over in just kind of watching God complete the work that he commissioned from the start through the Great Commission to bring the gospel to all people, tribes, nations, and tongues. It's just such an incredible picture that God is the one that is going to be victorious, not any specific person or organization or anything, but really God. And you see that through how all of these different translating and church planting and evangelism organizations are all collaborating in kind of unprecedented ways now. So I'm curious if you can kind of give us a picture for what you see coming over the next, you know, 10 or 15 years as this collaboration accelerates, you know, what kind of things do you see on the horizon that are maybe just in their early stages right now? Yeah, great question. And it's part of the fun thing of getting to look out and ask again, kind of the question, Lord, where are you at work in the world and how might we be able to join you in that? And so, As we look ahead, I think what we're going to see is, you know, a lot of the translations that are being done in communities that are accessible and things, they need to continue on and accelerate in that regard and move forward in some of the ways that that translation has taken place historically for many years now. So that would be one way that I think God's going to continue to accomplish some of the work. I mentioned, I think that I really believe that we're seeing new ways that God is expressing himself and moving globally today that is engaging through methodologies and people 
workforce people that we would not have considered before to be part of the Bible translation that he's reaching out and engaging. And so the biggest challenge for us is, okay, so how do we then engage with what God is doing new? Because it looks different than even how we've worked historically and how we typically do the work. And so I think one of the big challenges and opportunities, it's a both and, is so how are we going to continue to engage with these other movements that God has placed on their heart to engage and they're saying, hey, we want to see this carried out. And so we're being stretched. I will tell you, we're being stretched on how we engage with a lot of these new communities because they do it very differently. And that's a good thing. They don't need to do it just like we've done it historically. It's worked here, but you know what? God's doing it here and it's working here too. But how do we engage with them to see that happen? And more and more, what we're seeing is these are being birthed out of almost emerging church type of movements. I mentioned before, church planting movements and discipleship making movements. And so I really see going forward that we're going to have more of these dual spaces, you know, these emerging movements of God that are taking place and also the more established, well-established churches that are engaging and often the established mission organizations that are working there. So I think that's one of the biggest things that I'm most excited about is just seeing God's bringing together partners and churches, denominations, individuals to work together and accomplish this task that, again, I don't think we've ever seen it in the history of the world. I would really say, too, that the other area that often I refer to as the last frontier of Bible translation is an area that an unreached people group, matter of fact, it's combined, it's the largest unreached people group of the world that is somewhat out there, but it's also right here. And this is when I have opportunity to share, you know, here in the U.S. about this. I said, you know, you may know people from this community. Some will have family members that are of this community. Others may pass them by on a, on a daily basis, and they may or may not even know they're part of this community. And that community is the deaf. And often people don't realize that, you know, that the sign languages, they're a different language. They're different than what the spoken languages are. And so, for example, if you have a friend here in the U.S. who is deaf and they can read and write spoken English, often it's because they have learned a second language because American sign language, the grammar and such is different than what spoken English would be. And that is true around the world. So by best estimate, we think there's probably about 400 different sign languages globally, of which... Again, estimate, if you combine all the people that are deaf, we believe it's about 70 million people. And only 1% to 2%, it's estimated, of the deaf communities of the world have ever been exposed to the gospel. And so you look at it and you go, wow, here we are in 2022, and this is a reality around us, and these are our communities even around us. And often because deaf don't congregate in the same way that people of spoken languages do, they can be invisible within communities. And often, unfortunately, in a lot of contexts where there's not education for the deaf available and things is that they are really pushed to the edges of the communities and are the mistreatment and the atrocities that happen among the deaf globally can be very, very difficult. We just had, believe it or not, in 2020, the first full Bible in any sign language was completed, and that's American Sign Language. I mean, again, here we are in this day and age, and American Sign Language is completed. It was almost a 40-year project. You can go online. You can see if you Google American Sign Language, and there's some apps 
Deaf Bible and some others that you can look at. It's all video. And earlier books were recorded many years ago. And so you can see the styles have changed and things like that, you know, over the years. But this is the first world Bible. And so as we continue to engage for translation needs globally, the deaf are right at some of the highest remaining needs out there. And so this is something that we collectively, the church collectively, has got to engage with and realize that the deaf are a community around us that we must engage with. And it's a unique community. It's a fantastic community in many ways. But this is something that we've, you know, that we have to continue to engage with. The technology and things, it's very expensive. It's all video. And so we continue to need to see it. It's the area where we have a lot of other translation tools for spoken languages in the deaf communities. We're still lagging in that area. So this is an area that is at the top of our priorities moving forward over the next 10 to 15 years is that we want to see the sign languages of the world, the deaf communities of the world that have access to God's word in the form that they can understand. And so that's really key. Yeah, that's really exciting. Seems like there's a lot of work left to do, but I'm really glad that people like yourself are helping to lead that charge. But, you know, John, I've been thinking about this concept of taking scripture for granted. And ever since I've learned about Bible translating organizations, I've been trying to understand what it must be like to not have scripture in your primary language. And the best I could come up with was when I was a kid, I used to hate running and I had a sports injury and it required surgery on my knee. And for about a year, I couldn't run. And I've never wanted to run so bad in my life. And when I finally recovered from that, I joined the cross country team and I just had this new passion for running, which was something that I never really had any interest in. But I realized how much I had taken it for granted that I would always be able to. There's always time later until it was taken away from me. I'm wondering if that concept applies to scripture and what significance it must have when a people group has scripture in their home language, in their primary language. You know, you're right. I think that here in the U.S., just to your example of running, you didn't realize, you know, either the love for running or even maybe the ease of running until you had the injury and you had to go through that rehabilitation, such post-surgery. When you look at scripture availability in a, you know, like most of us have grown up here in the U.S., it's always been part of a reality. And you're right. We take it for granted. Matter of fact, we know and we see the statistics of it's not an availability issue for most in the U.S., it's an engagement. Are we actually engaging with this truth? You know, the greatest book ever really in that, the, this transformative book. And so when you see it on the other side, I mean, you can imagine what would happen if you had lived in a country where you had that same injury, but you didn't have the health, you know, system available to recover and to, you know, have the surgery and such to move that forward. What would that have been like? What would it have been like, you know, if you had to just figure out how to live with that? And often I think not having scripture, not having access like that is very similar, but it's our hearts and this hollowness that, that I think our creator created us with this void that we look to fill that void with something that's meaningful. We know that I believe it's the God void that we're looking for. And in scripture where it's not available, you look and say, so where's the hope? Where do I find hope in things? And what we have heard time and time again is that when people receive God's word for the first time in a form that they can understand, you begin to hear the stories of hope that they didn't have and how some of the things in their communities that they've never been able to figure out how to address, 
problems within the homes and things like that. When God's word comes into those communities and they begin, first of all, to find out that their creator loves them and speaks their language, that now there's somebody outside of my community. There's a God who loves me and cares for me and values me. And for the first time, I realize that I'm a person of value. That is one of the most transformative things that happens in these communities, particularly if they live next to a larger language community. Usually these smaller language communities are pushed out. They're told, you know, their entire lives that they're not as valuable as this community over here or this group over here. And so, but when they find that God loves them and speaks now their language and that he created their language and he created them unique the transformation that takes place over a sense of worth is absolutely incredible. And I would say that one of the stories that we do get to hear fairly regularly is somebody who most of our world today, people know more than one language. And so many times they will be educated in a national language. It's not the language that they spoke in their home, but they will go and, you know, if it's French, they may be educated in French or Spanish or one of those. And so many times some will even come to faith in a language that's their second or third language. But what we have heard often is that when translation takes place in the language that they spoke in their home, that they dream in and things, they're not working in a second language, but they could have heard the stories from scripture in this larger language. But when it comes to this smaller language, we hear over and over again, it's like, this is the first time I've ever heard it because it goes to a different level than what they have you know, what they have experienced before. And so the hope that comes through Christ, that we as believers, that we experience because of God's word in our language, and we know that, that same transformative power is needed, it's desired, even though people may not realize that they need it, but an opportunity to be able to engage and to see, I can have a personal relationship with my heavenly father, with a creator, with a savior that's taken away my sins. And now I have an opportunity to be redeemed and to live for him. And that message is transformative and has changed communities all around the world. You know, John, I've realized how delicate the work that you do and the work that Wycliffe does can be. And scripture is such a holy thing and such an important thing. And when you were talking about the revision of the Iranian text, I realized that it may be difficult to have a high degree of confidence in the end result when you have translated scripture into a new language. And I'm curious how your team goes about dealing with such a delicate work and how you trust God to lead you to the right translations when you're working with so many different people from different cultures. So, Often how we talk about it is how do we see quality assurance? How do we see that the best translations, you know, take place? I will tell you, I've never run into a community that said, you know what? We would just like a marginal half-baked translation. I just have never heard that. Everyone wants to have God's word as accurate as possible. And so it is, you know, translation is one of those things. It's not just about translating word for word. If that would be the case, then, you know, Google would be a big help on some of that because you can do a word for word translation. But as you know, when you put it together, a lot of times it just doesn't make sense. If you speak more than one language and you do that type of a literal translation, you know, word for word, often it just doesn't make it there. And so part of what we continue to see, and I think it is, it's a human factor. 
and then I believe it's a Holy Spirit factor, is that we work to use the best resources that we know how and to help train people so that they can train, so that they can have translations that we often talk about it, that they're accurate, they're clear, and we use the word natural a lot. What that means is that we want the translation to sound like how they speak. We don't want it to be, you know, cryptic or archaic and that type of thing because it just doesn't flow. Translation is not just about translating a word for word. Translation is about translating a concept into another concept. And so it's this love letter that God has given that's been God-breathed, that's been inspired in that regard. And God also, he does his role, I believe, as the Holy Spirit to empower men and women around the world to do things that may be well beyond them. And so you've got that. You don't just want to say, okay, Holy Spirit, just do it all. And he could. He doesn't choose often to do it that way. And that's where then we come in and say, so what are some of the best practices in the training? How can we come along? How can people from outside, you know, your communities come alongside and help to impart the training and the knowledge that they have had? And so this is something that across the Bible translation world, that accuracy is really, really important to us. We hold that very, very firmly in that regard because we want to see everybody you know, have an accurate translation. And what we will find is that many times those first translations, they're good, but as the church grows and they learn and understand these new concepts, some concepts that are in scripture that have never really been introduced into these communities. For example, there are some communities out there that they have no concept of the word forgiveness. They don't know what that means. So you introduce a word like forgiveness into a community, you begin to teach and to train around that. And some of those early translations, you know, may have descriptors or words that they've used for that, that as they grow deeper, you know, they may say, actually, this word over here may better communicate that. It's just like what happens in the English translations where our language changes and we have to update text and things because language is not static. The same thing is true about as God is transforming lives and hearts, that there will be continued ways that we can expand and go, oh, I understand at a new level what that meant, what was intended in the original text. This is how we might be able to describe that better in the language as the church grows and such. And so it is not just about a translation process. It really is about a transformative process that God is doing in the hearts and minds of these communities. And as the church grows and as you engage more and more people within, in and around a translation, the quality of that translation will also improve over time. And so it's not a one and done because, again, languages are not static. It's a continued, how do we continue to revise and get better? And prayerfully, that church, that local church will continue to grow. They will have the tools that they will be to do more and more of that for themselves. And then all the other things that we take for granted all the study tools that we have, all the Bible study material, things like that, you know, for the churches that are growing there, we want to see them be able to have those same things so that they can truly grow as a church. They can be discipled and grow in their evangelism and depth and knowledge of who God is and how he loves them. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear you describe that. And that makes total sense, you know, that there are cultures out there that have no concept of the idea of forgiveness. I just never considered that. But if you think about it, on a daily basis, we hear catchphrases and idioms and all kinds of little linguistic things that are all rooted in our kind of 
Judeo-Christian background. That's right. As a culture, we totally take that for granted. You know, the writings on the wall or things like that. Everybody knows what it means, even if they've never opened a Bible before. But that's all from the Bible. And so, you know, going to a culture that has never had been exposed to the word, you know, a lot of that stuff is just totally foreign and yeah, just very interesting. I never considered that before. You know, you kind of alluded to this earlier a little bit, but, you know, our podcast is focused on the question, how can we best steward God's wealth with the understanding that really no wealth or financial capacity that passes through our hands belongs to us at all. We are just managers over whatever portion God's given us to manage over whatever time he gives us. And so I was wondering if there are any kind of financial partnerships or ways that donors or givers or or financial partners have been really able to accelerate the work you guys are doing, if there's any stories where you've seen God work through that. You know, I think when you look at the full picture of what it takes to carry out Great Commission activities, specific in our, what we're talking about, translation, it takes a global church to be able to do that. And those that God has called, that has, that God has given to steward financial resources, we could not do the work without the gospel patrons in that regard that God has called. It is a vital part of the work. And, and one of the things that we really work hard to do is to go beyond just a person that is, you know, or a family unit that's just giving money. But how are we engaging their hearts and their minds and the work around there? Because they are such a crucial part of the work wherever it's happening globally. It just couldn't happen without them. And I would say, you know, in the U.S. in particular, it's been one of the blessings of the U.S. church to the world when those resources are stewarded well in order to participate. And we just get to hear time and time again, incredible stories of men and women and families that really, they have a calling. Some of them have significant resources they can give and others may not have much. And yet they say, Lord, we want to use, we want to participate in the manner that we're able to participate. And so time and time again, where people will give out of their abundance, and that happens, and we're really grateful for that. And then others that will give out of their limited resources and say, Lord, we're going to take a step of faith and step out. There was a couple last year that participated in an event, and they said, we made our largest pledge or our largest hope for a gift, prayed for a gift that we ever done. And we didn't have the resources at that time to be able to fulfill that. And so it was kind of, Lord, we just feel like this is what you're calling us to do. And so they made that commitment. And then we were with them just a couple months later in their home and they were sharing, you know what? We made that pledge. We feel like, I don't know how it's going to happen. And then they began to tell the story in just in a very short period. I think it was two or three months that God brought another opportunity in their life, a business opportunity, that that commitment was filled within two or three months of their having made that commitment. And it just completely blew their socks off in that way. You know, and so they got to participate in the work over wherever it was that they were engaging, the part of the world they were engaging. But what it was is it also strengthened their faith that they felt like we're following in obedience. This is beyond what we can do. We're opening our hands and we're asking in faith that we're going to move this forward. And he did that, you know, again and again and again. And so in that one, it was fulfilled. And we get to hear those stories, those God stories of showing up. So I think part of the fun part of this work for me is just to see how God 
is not just carrying out his work over there someplace, but how he's carrying it out here in our homes, in our hearts and minds, and with our partners here that say, you know, we're going to link hands with you in faith. We want to engage and participate. And again, some are able to do that out of their abundance, and they just, they're called to do that and give out a tremendous, you know, giving, and others that that are very limited in that regard. I'll tell you, one of the fun things for me, we had at one of our weekends, we call it our presence forum last summer. We get commitment cards and things, which is, you know, fairly common to these things. But I will tell you, probably the most meaningful card that I received that I got to read is we opened up the envelope and there was $80 cash in it. And it was written out, a young man by the name of Cooper. And Cooper said, I'm giving this to you in cash because I'm only 14. He had been planning and saving, knowing that their family is going to be participating. This was at least their second or third event. And I heard about Cooper. I got to meet Cooper when he was 11. And at 11, he didn't have much money. He broke his piggy bank and he gave there because he wanted to participate in what God's doing. But he also said, Mom and Dad, I need a whole bunch more chores so I can earn more money because I want to participate in this Bible translation over there. And it reminded me in many ways of the widow's might. You know, that's that story that Christ tells that, you know, again, some can give out of abundance and some get very limited. But that part for me that was so fun and transformative is to see how God had captured his heart as an 11 year old. And then, you know, a couple years later as a 14 year old that he was engaging with that. And he realized that I'm a part of something that God is doing in this form somewhere, probably with people that I'll never get to meet on this side of eternity, but I'm all in. I'm excited about it. And it was just, it was an incredible encouragement to all of us as we got to read Cooper's card in that regard. Yeah, I love those stories. They just never get old. And it's really just exciting to see people get involved. And that looks different for everyone, but I just love that story about Cooper. So thank you for sharing that. As we wrap up this episode, I do want to leave some time for our manager's minute. We talk a lot about this concept of stewardship and God owns everything. And we are managing what has been given to us to manage. So John, do you have an idea for our listeners on how they can use any resources that God has given them to help serve their communities and advance the gospel and build God's kingdom? You know, one of the things that I've been pretty excited about recently is giving within a community. And what I mean by that is that we've seen a couple of forms where friends will come together and they'll say, let's do this together. Let's give. Again, we can't do it maybe individually by ourselves, but let's come together as a community, a small group or whatever, to participate in something together. And we want to be able to engage in prayer. We want to be engaged financially. We want to be able to engage our full hearts. And we're seeing that both within communities. But I would also say that what we're seeing is families that are doing it at a generational level. And so maybe mom and dad or grandma and grandpa have been engaged and this is their heart. And they've got these other generations that are coming up behind them. And what are they doing to really to pass that same sense of giving, that same sense of contribution and participation together? And so really looking at these families or say, hey, we want our kids and we want our grandkids to be able to participate. And again, they're giving in community. In this case, it's a family, a community of a family that says we want to do this together. In these other cases, it may be a community of people that say, hey, let's come together. We're going to pray about this. We're going to do it together. And so I really challenge people to look at opportunities that they can engage, but do it as a community. Individually is really great, but I challenge you Look for ways that you can engage as a community. 
Yeah, I love that idea. And I've experienced the joy of giving alongside others. And people can challenge each other, but also encourage each other. We know giving can certainly be contagious. John, could you just share some information if our listeners want to learn a little bit more about Wycliffe and the work that you're doing? Where can they find that information? Yeah, probably the easiest is just if you go to your browser and type in Wycliffe.org. We, you know, we've talked a lot about giving this time, which I'm really grateful for. We have other ways of engaging around prayer. And sometimes people say, I want to actually go and participate. And so there are opportunities to do so there. And so, yeah, Wycliffe.org. And you can find out, engage with us there. And it gives multiple ways that you can connect with us, contact us to find out more information or to go and explore more just to learn about what God is doing around the world in the area of Bible translation. Yeah, and I encourage everybody to check that out. John, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to share the wisdom that you have gained through all the work that you've been a part of. And just to share a bigger picture of what God is doing around the world and what an exciting decade we have ahead of us. I am very excited to see how God works and how he continues to bring his church together. So Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Well, Keelan, Cody, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. I just, one final word. One of the things that I believe that I have the opportunity to to view is that we're just seeing God pour out his spirit in ways around the world that I don't know if I've ever seen before, really in the history of the world, incredible ways. And the other thing that I'm seeing is that it feels like the heart is getting harder. And so we're living more and more, I think, in these two polar extremes. I don't know about you, but not as much in the middle for me anyway. But I think that's what God will be calling, continue to be calling us to. And so realizing that God is at work and his spirit is being poured out upon the earth and realize that the enemy is stepping it up and life's going to get harder. So we've got to choose where we fix our eyes. And so I appreciate both of you and how you regularly in your ministry, how you're challenging others to where do you fix your eyes and how do you steward the resources that God has entrusted to you? So blessings to you. Thank you for this opportunity and and grateful for both of you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line and they don't need to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 49. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time. 